Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode number 72 with uh, my new friend, Dr. Jerome Libba. Dr. Jerome is the creator of the brain-based Enneagram, and we talked about all kinds of things in this podcast. We talked science, hope, trauma, shame, the brain-based Enneagram, Jesus. To be honest, this is possibly my most self-indulgent interview. (laughs) You may listen to this um, and be like, wow, great that those two guys had a lot of fun, but we don't understand the word they're talking about. If that is the case, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link to some resources in the show notes for you so that you can dive deeper. If anything sounds really interesting, but that we were kind of already talking at a diff- different level and you need a bit of a primer, I will link to those resources. But I really, really enjoyed my time with Jerome. Uh, we hit it off, and I think that even even if some of this stuff is is a bit heady, there there's a lot here that is good and hope filled, and I believe uh, will take you somewhere. And I would really encourage you to dig deeper into the work that Dr. Jerome is doing. Uh, he is a true gift uh, in this season, and I'm really excited to share uh, his thoughts with you. Here we go. I've got the brain-based enneagram. Uh, awesome. I. I dove into it when I first got it. I read like the first two thirds and I was like, awesome. And then put it down and then finished it this morning. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's when you know you're doing good work. You're like, I haven't got all the time in the world just to read this crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But I loved it. I loved it. For me, it was like, it was a great um, synthesis of a whole bunch of stuff that I've also been kind of pulling from here and pulling from there. So it it was, it felt for me like a missing piece. Uh, even in my writing and what I'm doing. So, so I was super, super thankful for, for what you've done. And, and, and like you were just saying, yeah. uh, the, the multidisciplinary stuff that you're pulling together. Uh, I, I love yeah. that. And that book tip of the iceberg. I mean, most people don't realize it's, it's only 15,000 words because I was just trying to get people's appetite whetted, but also at the same time, the topic is so big. If I introduce mm-hmm. comprehensively, the chances of losing people. So I was like, I'm going to give you the alphabet of this conversation, (laughs) but it's, uh, that's why it's volume one. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I would, I'd be interested to hear if you, if you'd give us say like just a couple of those major elements and how you kind of got into them. So we've got the Enneagram, we've got, uh, sort of basic, basic brain science, this sort of a a measure of sort of trauma informed understanding. How did you kind of come to each of those different pieces and then how did the the dots start to connect for you? Gosh, yeah. I mean, the the I always joke with folks, there's very few things in my life that were solicited. Almost everything happened unsolicited. Like I didn't ask to be born in Africa. I didn't ask to move to Tennessee and go to a town named Mohawk. I didn't ask to get bullied by kids for years for being an immigrant kid that looked just like them, but they couldn't understand why I wasn't black, but I was from Africa. Why I wasn't black, but my name was Jerome. Growing up with an identical twin wasn't solicited, but very entertaining. Um, also, I mean, I, I became a patient unwittingly, uh, and I've been a patient for 20 years with complex uh, pain and, and, and migraine history. And, and, you know, I think anybody who's been a patient for a long time will understand what it means to be a professional patient, which you, you tend to know more than the providers that you're meeting with. Um, and then, you know, losing a, losing a dad as a freshman in high school. Um, Lots of different trauma and grief and seeing people pass away. My wife and I have lost three out of four parents. Uh, so understanding what it's like to be, uh, to be 
a patient, to understand what it's like to bury people, um, to move into clinical spaces and become a doctor because I couldn't find a good one uh, or one that knew how to treat me. Um, my wife specializing in microfinance and nonprofit work and anti-human trafficking and seeing the world that is trauma-informed, strength-based care uh, within a clinical setting. Seeing the tremendous change in power of good quality therapy and counseling, especially learning more and more about experiential psychotherapy and all of the places that exist around that, uh, diving headlong into the clinical work of people like Bessel van der Kolk and Peter, mm. Peter Levine and Stephen Porges and Pat Ogden and all of my clinical mentors who, when I started in functional neurology 10 years ago, were introducing clinical applications of polyvagal therapy before there was even a book written on it. Mm. Um, you had the conceptual pieces of people like van der Kolk and everybody else introducing it and, and Porges, but the, the fact that I was living in a clinical space where people were doing brainstem rehab every day. And going, how do you rehab the brainstem? Yes. And you know, my we know it works. We know things are we happening, know works. but we're not totally sure <laughs> what or why. <laughs> but this is the amazing thing. So being introduced into the world of functional neurology, because I couldn't find a neurologist that knew how to rehab me, and I couldn't find an alternative provider who knew how to deal with the complexity of the case. So the mm. functional neurology marries those two, because my doctorate is in chiropractic, but then all the board certifications and postgraduate fellowships are in neurology. So I ended up sitting in a space with people who were clinically figuring out how to reverse engineer the evidence-based approaches of the research into clinical applications. So they, they were building evidence bridges with the research and then practically applying it and going, no, we can reverse engineer why this works because the evidence shows how each of those systems are built and how they, how they communicate. So let's have conversations with them. But then unsolicited, I'm in the middle of all of that. And a good friend of mine, like most Enneagram folks, was pretty passive about letting me know that there's something that I should check out. Um, <laughs> And I felt like I was back in, in my high school experience at a charismatic church saying, but this is going to be the one, man. This is the one you got to come. This one's going to be the, it's, the fire is all over this thing. And I'm like, look, man, I, I feel like I'm about to get into another thing where somebody's going to teach me another dialect of speaking in tongues. And I don't know if I'm up for that. I'm still trying to recover from that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I had a really good friend of mine who's really, I mean, a brilliant guy. He filmed, uh, we did a course that I released a year and a half ago called The Neurotheology of Self-Care. Um, it's a 21 video series of six and a half hours of finished content around uh, understanding how your brain works, teaching you how to use your brain, self-care, practical applications, all of that. And this guy filmed it, and we've done a lot of life together, so I trust him. And uh, he just really, really pushed me. He goes, "I think there's something here for you." Um, so you look at me being a, a, a you know, a, a, a believer who became a skeptic pretty heavily when you put people in the ground and you get anointed with enough oil to bathe the cow, but it doesn't get rid of your migraines. Uh, and it doesn't save your parents from dying, and it doesn't save your brothers from uh, losing kids, uh, you know, so all of these things. And then, you know, uh, becoming a, a patient and then becoming a doctor in that space, uh, diving into neuroscience and then being exposed to the Enneagram and going, man, this feels a lot like everything else. It feels a lot like the way the brain works. It feels a lot like the way that I, I personally experience spirituality and, and the divine and, and what everybody refers to in this space, uh, you know, obviously as God or, or universal consciousness, whatever everybody's language is. I'm like this just naturally feels like the way that literally the universe and literally the brain works. Um, but why in the world is there no resources in 20, this was in 2010, uh, 20, 2011, 
why is there not a single science-based resource for this entire thing that is sweeping the nation? You know, I'm like, I felt like it was either, either something valid that I had stumbled onto again, unsolicited, or it was a new WWJD bracelet for the evangelical church. One of those two things, or maybe both of them are true. Um, but I just ended up going, man, I, the whole, my whole life story to answer it in one sentence is I kept running into places where I didn't have answers for the questions that I was asking mm -hmm. and no one seemed to be able to point me to resources where I could get those answers. So I kept chasing them down until I found that there's actually a community of people that are actively pursuing those answers. They just tend to be like a fight club. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like you just don't right. know they exist until you walk into the room and most people don't know this maybe you will i don't know this there was a show called highlander with duncan mcleod mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it was one of my favorite shows because every time that you would sense another immortal they'd have this like woo, 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 like sound that would happen and i kept walking into these rooms and i'd be like there's another one they're here <laughs> right and it would feel like i walked into the presence of someone who's really seeking some answers and some understanding. And, and that just ended up getting me into a place where I was like, no topic and no space and no question and no person and no approach is off limits. So let's just see if these are universal truths and if they're universal laws, both metaphorically and literally, there should be some translation tools and some, some synonymous spaces that allow us to synergize this. And, and that's kind of in the life work at this point. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. I love that. I've been fascinated. Just last week, I was thinking about science and, and the, the role of science to reveal good news. And I, I feel like, I think partly some with, with, with a quasi-evangelical upbringing, there was sort of like an, an implicit, uh, well, you know, science is kind of yeah. the, the bad guy. Because, sure. you know, God created the universe, not a Big Bang. But the more, I, the more I learned about the Big Bang, I'm like, what does it look like for God to create something out of nothing? To me, that sounds totally like a, a singularity that suddenly expands into like... Sure. Okay, so I got no problem with that. And I feel like as my life has gone on, the more, the more science I, I encounter, the more it just seems to keep affirming good news like good news Absolutely. Like, this is not bad my wife right now is reading um come as you are by emily nagoski all about female brain science and body as it relates to sexuality and there's Amazing. just so much in there that's like hey so here's all this crazy mythology that we've believed for so many years it's crazy um, like the one that she was reading the other day was about the hymen uh if you're okay to go full vagina right now. Yeah, no, come uh, on, man. So, you know, like, I, I, I'm allowed to do, I'm allowed to do a gynecological exam in 13 States. So <laughs> I can't do it in Georgia, but I've never done one in my life just for, for what it's worth. But I do understand the anatomy pretty well. So you can go. Where so like, I mean, I was fully, I was fully raised with like, okay, so like the hymen is the proof of your virginity. And, uh, that's why, you know, the people will hang up a bed sheet outside their house to be like, yeah, look, I slept with my, with my new wife for the first time proof. She's bleeding. She's a virgin. And I've heard people even in my, uh, tradition talk about being sexually active before marriage, how it was so evil, but how God restored their virginity to them. Right. And, and this was like, God healed my hymen. And this is proof that like, God has like made me clean. Well, uh, the science is like, yeah, so uh, that, none of that's really a real thing because right. for, uh, that's a the hymen's a stretchy material. For some people, it just grows back all the time. For other people, it doesn't. It actually can't bleed. So if you're bleeding, it's because you're doing it wrong. 
And I'm like, okay, a little bit of science just like debunked yeah. this whole cultural mythological craziness. Yeah. So, so science is good news. Science, science is so good, man. And it's also, you know, I think the challenge is that there's such a, there's such a safety net and such a, such a protective space around maintaining a mythology uh, because it doesn't push you into the arena to substantially study, substantially trust, substantially uh, test and prove your faith to the degree that it holds water. You know, because I think one of the statements that I use is if anyone uses absolutes, they either have oversimplified the issue or they don't fully understand it. Mm. And what ends up happening when you use mythology, interestingly enough, is it creates this really fascinating space of increased standard of use for absolutes. Like everything becomes a, a binary black or white issue. Even though mythology is completely untestable, it's almost like the idea that the complete mysticism or the complete magic system in it makes it so unprovable that it has to be relied on just just because someone's communicated just it to you. Just on merit. Um, just on or merit alone. It's on like, merit, it, just on... No, it's just it, because I said so, right? And it's almost like the protective nature of the mythology within, within a lot of the, the Judeo-Christian cultures. It's so protected because you can't really even locate it. So it's really hard to disprove something you can't even track down. It's like you ask some basic questions of uh, not using science and not using argument. Can you give me, I don't know, maybe a scriptural reference for uh, the legitimacy of virginity based on uh, the hymen? I don't, I don't know. Is there, is there a right. scriptural reference for that? Because we're really, really advocating the efficacy and the inerrancy of the Bible, but you're extrapolating something that there's literally no possible way that could work. And it's also interestingly enough for me, Jonathan, it's the side of the conversation where it's a lot easier to see God for a lot of people, I think, as the Wizard of Oz than it is somebody who is so intentionally moving the world towards an integrated and healthy perspective. Mm. Because if you believe in entropy and you believe in chaos, uh, you know, if you believe on, in the idea that the world is constantly trying to destroy itself and there's this divinity that's trying to hold it all together like it's, you know, some sort of, if I if, excuse the French, some sort of shit show that God's just trying to keep together, mm -hmm. then it's a lot easier to be, to be able to abdicate any kind of engagement because it's all going to hell in a handbasket anyways. You're just a passenger. But at the same time, as a passenger, don't worry about understanding it anymore because there's nothing you can really do about it. So there's this really interesting contrast between trusting the Wizard of Oz, being apathetic and abdicating your responsibility because there's nothing you can do to impact it, You know, not being willing to put in the time to question, do I understand the depth of what it is that I believe in? All of these things, I think, have different degrees of ownership and responsibility. But what happens is somebody misses the profound opportunity to learn how the world works and be in absolute awe mm -hmm. of the way that the world operates. I mean, you've been to South Africa. I'm from South Africa. You cannot have – I don't care what your faith background is. I don't care what your, what your, your level of, of, of spiritual practice is. It doesn't matter. As a human being, if you stand in front of Victoria Falls and you are not awe-inspired – then I, I don't know what part of you is broken or who hurt you enough to stand in front of that thing and not go, this is majestic. Mm -hmm. And I can feel the same way when I study to work with patients and go, the system that allows us to stand upright against gravity 
that also develops the brain, turns it on and helps us to develop our ability to have cognition like thinking and feeling is dependent on our ability to move against gravity and how all of those systems work is so mind-blowing that I don't sit there and go, man, you know, that guy, God, he must have, or they, in my opinion, they must have really missed the boat on, on all of this stuff. I guess we, we, uh, we just got to trust science and not believe in God, or we got to believe in God and not trust in science. And I'm going, man, I can't see this stuff and not be absolutely amazed at how the world operates. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that that's hard to hold that and good news at the same time. I just, yes. just don't, you know, it's like one of the, one of the videos in the course I was mentioning was called the science of faith or the science of hope and explaining that it's actually pretty easy from a scientific perspective to explain faith as neurochemistry, okay. that if it's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen, and you know, hope is a thought, you cannot have a thought without a neurochemical change in your brain to produce a thought. You have to have neurochemistry that supports the thought. And the reason that it's a substance of things not seen is because it's, it's neurochemistry on a microscopic level. So it's one of those things that if you understand pre-sentiment, pre-cognition, and a lot of the stuff that's being studied in artificial intelligence, if you have faith, you're actually catching up to somebody, something that your body has already believed in and manufactured. It just hasn't shown up in, in the natural world from a, from a naked eye standpoint. Mm. But faith is not a future tense experience. It's a present tense experience. And realistically, you can make the argument that it's a past tense experience you're walking into because you've already had the change in your body. It just took some time for you to register it. So it's like all of these things in terms of what would it, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like what would it look like? Especially in my world, which you can appreciate, you know, I was raised in the culture that when we were taught how to speak tongues, we were told to say economy Honda should have bought a Toyota. (laughs) Economy Honda should have bought a Toyota and repeat, right. And the Holy spirit will come. I, what, what I, what I had was uh, should have bought a Honda instead of bought a Ford. <laughs> See, it's always something about Hondas. What is it about Hondas? But anyways, man, the cultural piece was just crazy. Um, but looking in that space and going, I was always given the impression in this that, that faith was like the carrot on the stick, mm. that it was, it was a pursuit, but not anything that you could actually capture. If you did capture, it was fleeting, like the constant effort of trying to get into contact with faith or or the fruit of what you're praying for man if somebody had told me when i was a teenager when i was grieving the loss of my dad in high school and and going through all those spaces that having faith in something is just allowing your body to do what it naturally does and you being a participant in that process to co-create but i don't bear the responsibility or the capacity to manufacture my own neurotransmitters and hormones I have the capacity to put myself into a healthier space of rest so that I'm not burning through my resources quickly because I'm in a sympathetic storm or a fight or flight response. But if somebody had told me, look, I'm going to teach you a breathing technique and let you know that the fact that you have took, taken your foot off of the gas pedal called stress, fear, and panic is allowing your body to produce more fuel that is actually going to help you through the grieving process, which is also not sinful, and the suffering process, which is not your fault. And the healing process, which is not your responsibility, just try not to get too much in the way and realize that by having faith, it's already happening. Just try not to interrupt it any more than you unintentionally already are. Can we just take a second Mm. and realize that I probably need a better education than a more consistent condemnation, you know? So it was, uh, I don't know, man, all those things get me into a space where I'm like, 
damn it, I wish I was taught this when I was like 15. It would have been a lot easier for me. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I've just finished the draft of a, of a devotional that is an attempt to pull together body and breath work, trauma-informed therapy, what we know from the psychology community, as well as like theophostic listening prayer, uh, contemplative spirituality, neogram, kind of early childhood wound, a bunch of your stuff to sort of pull it all together to say, okay, can I teach you in, a, in like in 30 days how to become responsible for yourself? Yeah. And how to like see the beauty of who you are and what God made and what God gave you. And can you love yourself the way God loves you? Yeah. So this is like the fruit of, of, of a bunch of stuff in my life, obviously. And, and somebody wrote to me the other day. Who, I've got a bunch of beta readers testing it out right now because I'm like, I'm like, I don't know if, if this will work, if it can be pulled together in such a way that that without Absolutely. doing a deep dive on these subjects that it actually works. I don't know yet. Verdict still I'm expecting so by the time this airs, I will have heard the, the feedback. But somebody <laughs> wrote me the other day and, and she said, Jonathan, I've been a Christian for 25 years. And God has never felt safe. And so I couldn't get anywhere else with any of the tools and frameworks and and church life that I've been just told to basically white knuckle my way through because God is good and that's that. But all the rest of my theology essentially was backing up that I'm bad, that I'm wretched, that I'm, you know, just like it's the charity of God that he has anything to do with me. And, And she's like, you just blew this wide open for me. And for the very first time in my life, I think I could have a relationship with the God that I've said I believed in all my life. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, that piece of feedback, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just, that, that's the rest of my life. I'm good. Um, Absolutely. Cause that's good news, right? Exactly. That's, that's, that's the whole point. That's so point. I mean, this is one of the things that I keep, keep pushing back against a lot of people, especially you're you're in Canada. I'm in the states, uh, and I have to be conscientious as I say this as a legal resident alien because I'm not a citizen, so I can't still get deported. Um, the climate in 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 the world as a whole, but especially in the in the political climate in the states nowadays, is so incendiary and it's so it's so aggressive um, that there are two statements that I, I I say when I would talk to people and and something comes up around the fear of who God is or the fear of safety and relationship. And one of them is, I will challenge anybody to give me an example, and I will bet my clinical license on it and all of my degrees. Show me one example where Jesus encountered someone who was hurting, and he introduced fear, shame, or intimidation. One. Give me one example where he introduced fear, shame, or intimidation. I will give up all my licenses. Come I'll, go work at a, I'll go work at a cookout here. Right? That's, a, that's a fast food joint. But my point is, is there's one of these things that we have lost touch with the idea, and it's so profound. And this is the thing, to your point, where you're like, how do I synergize all of these things? I, I constantly get into these spaces where I'm like, how the hell am I going to distill this to a point where it actually is palatable? Mm. And then I see Jesus answering a question to a lawyer on what is the most important law, and he distills the whole thing down to two sentences with one primary point and i'm like okay my man can do it i can do it we can figure it out i can do greater things than jesus like explain the brain in the enneagram that might be something interesting we'll see but he's looking at it and saying i i I know that there is so many so many contexts there's so much nuance there's so much space where i can't answer you in an absolute but what i can do is say if it is not 
grounded and cornerstone based in the idea of relationship in community in love, the whole thing is wasted. It's useless. So everybody in those spaces, like you're just talking about with that person that gave you that feedback, you're talking about somebody that, and this is for a lot of people right now. It's why the church is hemorrhaging people. There are Christian nuns, Christian duns, Christian everybody who doesn't even want to be related. And that word becomes a trigger in and of itself, just saying the word Christian. And you're looking at everybody in that space and going, you know that God, and whether you agree with it or not, they've got relative trauma in their history that has created an unsafe environment internally and externally in terms of their relationships. And going, but how did we get so far off track to not realize that the purest example of healthy gospel is a person who never introduced fear, shame, or intimidation? Mm. So if we don't know that, then everybody who is in a space that's intimidated that isn't met with compassion, we're not doing it properly. Anybody who's met with fear or shame that we're not giving resources to be able to do the effective trauma-informed work to get back in connection with somatic work and experiential work and body-based breath work to re-identify with the fact that they are not broken and damaged as a human being in their own body, which I can relate to spiritually and as a patient. But then the other statement that I was going to make that I think is also really, really important in this time is I think the reason that most people either hate or love Trump is he looks a lot like the God they grew up with. And that either makes you feel very comfortable and safe or very uncomfortable and very unsafe. So I just say that to say in context that's not an advocation for anybody, but I think everybody can pretty clearly see that that might be something they want to investigate. But in any context, if you're not introducing work, and especially a challenge to you and me as people who are teaching and, and trying to equip people, if my work creates intimidation, fear, or shame, I have to reframe it because that is not good news. It just can't be. Yes. Yeah, okay. So uh, let me share with you then uh, an experience that I had last week uh, in, in, a, in a meditation of my own. Uh, because this is, cause what you just hit on there about Christ is, is really, it has to mean something for our lives. And yeah. in the context of this conversation, I think it can mean something for our neurology and for the personification of our different brain components. So uh, I've been uh, I've been training in the last couple of years on a on a healing methodology that basically says, okay, we know we've got uh, you know our brainstem and our amygdala and the parts that are looking to constantly keep us in safety and you know respond in a in a very essentially fundamentally protective manner, right? Uh, yeah, and then we've got uh, our cognitive, functional kind of left hemisphere. Let's get things done. Let's think about time. Let's strategize. And then, of course, we've got our our more creative, pain, memory, emotive. Uh, there's no such thing as time. It's all now, and it's all scary, uh, or it's all painful, yeah. or it's all good. Um, so the the tool that that I've been working with, I've received some counseling in this, and the basic idea is that uh, you can address those three parts of the brain. You can talk 100%. to one hundred percent, and uh, Jesus will willingly come and interface with each of them and help each one of them out with the load that they're carrying, and yep. uh, will help them uh, resynchronize with one another because we slip out of sync as life goes on, right? I mean, I mean, if we personify the left, it's like ah, oh, bloody emotions get in the way of everything. I can't, I can't get stuff done, right? So, right. So anyway, uh, 
that's by way of introduction for anybody else who's like, what on earth is he about to talk? So <laughs> I, I'm sitting there and, and over the, the the weekend prior, I'd, I'd been feeling like a painful part was coming forward. I just started to get that, that sense of some kind of a lot of emotion coming to the surface. Some trauma was ready to be processed uh, is the easiest yeah. way to describe it, right? Now, sure. a, a year and some ago, I had left a job at a, at a workplace that ended up being super, super toxic. And, and I had a sense that maybe there would be, you know, it's been a year and a half. I felt like maybe ready to deal with that. So I'm kind of in my meditative space uh, and I'm just sort of tuning in with, with my inner world. And, uh, I just sort of said to myself, is there, is there any pain that's, that's presenting here? Anything that would like to just share its story. And immediately I get this picture of myself trudging to work. Uh, it's like gray day, rainy, and I'm just like hunched over and I'm like, wow, okay. I'm, I'm feeling that's like an emotional representation of this part of me that's carrying this pain from, from a year and a half ago. And I just sort of began to invite Jesus to come and, and, and would you help this part of me that's carrying this pain that seems ready to to release some trauma and nothing's happening total stonewall uh, i've experienced what it feels like for that for that to change and for and even through sort of like sort of light emdr work to to have that that healing flow yeah nothing happening and so in the framework that i'm given okay i'm going to check for some kind of protective mechanism some kind of uh amygdala response that's like hey i can't go near that pain because that's not safe right so i basically i just said to myself okay is there anyone here um who's preventing this from anyone here who doesn't want us to deal with this and immediately i felt like you know sort of a personification say oh yeah uh that's me i'm here i'm stopping this and i said okay uh and 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 who are you and a lot of my listeners are already abandoning the, the episode right about now. And I said, I said <laughs> there's really good psychology behind this. We'll get into it. It's IFS, but yeah, keep going. So I said, who are, who are you? And, and basically the personification was like, Oh, I'm the one who makes Jonathan feel like shit. Uh, and I was like, okay. Um, what, why is that? Oh, uh, super simple. So Jonathan turned up at this at this workplace, and he's full of ideas, and his ideas kept getting rejected, and he that really hurt him. And so we figured the best way for him to not be hurt was to not put forward new ideas. But he's so relentless that we figured if he feels personally worthless and like he has nothing to offer, that's the only way he won't put new ideas forward. So we started running him down all the time and just making him feel totally worthless so that he would stop getting hurt. Yeah. And you know Absolutely. my 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 cognitive brain is like flipping out right now cuz I'm like, "Ah, I can totally make sense of this." Like I've never really identified with having a strong inner critic, but you know, I know for many people that's a huge reality. Uh for sure. all of my enneagram type 1s out there, uh I'm a I'm strongest in two energy. So I immediately just switch into, "Okay, how can I help?" And yeah. so to your point on Jesus never bringing shame and condemnation, I said I said to that part that it's kind of slid forward, and I said, "Hey, thank you so much for doing what you knew how to do to protect me. Um, that was a that's really wonderful that you were that you were doing what you could do to, to to protect me. I thank you, thank you for that. I do wonder, do you know Jesus?" Can you see over there, kind of in my other brain space, where Jesus tends yeah. to hang out with the rest of my parts? 
Do you know him? Yeah, I've heard of Jesus. Have, do you know some of his stories? Have you heard some of the, the stories like when he when a woman caught in, in, a, in the act of adultery was brought to him and he he treated her in such a way that dignified her and respected her and 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 turned yeah. her accuser, you know, and, and I basically began reminding, you know, that part of myself, a bunch of Jesus stories. And I said, have you noticed that when Jesus protects, he doesn't bring on shame and condemnation? And that part of my brain basically was like, yes, I have noticed. I'm intrigued. I would like to learn more. And I said, well, listen, if you'd like to go and hang out with Jesus, Jesus, would you like to teach that part of my brain your your tips and tricks? And Jesus is yeah. uh, always willing. Quote number one of Jesus, I am willing. Uh, <laughs> and so and immediately I basically felt like that kind of blockage internally sort of poof, like, OK, you can go off and do your thing with Jesus. And then Absolutely. I was able to tune back into that that sort of presenting pain part and go, okay, uh, Jesus, can we do some business here? Anyway, there's more to that, obviously, in terms of how it went on in my totally. heart. But that idea that Jesus never brings shame or condemnation and nope. and can elevate those parts of us that don't know any other way. Absolutely. And it's the other thing, you know, it, it, not only is it important to see what Jesus doesn't introduce, but you're, you're hitting squarely on the head what Jesus always introduces, which is no shame, fear, or intimidation, but there's always, there's always a reminder of identity. There's a reminder of community. There's a reminder of a familial aspect. I mean, every example, but like, for instance, the woman that had the issue of blood that touched the hem of his garment, which is actually a really good evidence of quantum entanglement and, and energetic healing. Um, but that freaks people out because um, she didn't even touch him. He didn't even touch her. He didn't give her consent. He didn't even know if she was there. She got healed just based off of touching a piece of clothing, touching him. Weird quantum entanglement. Felt and, power, and, leave and, me. Exactly. Felt power, you leave know? me. And everyone loves Power, leave me. Yeah. And I'm like, the, okay, he's a, he's, he's a Jedi, right? But the point is, is you just had somebody in context touch a rabbi on their period when they're not even supposed to be in public. So, I mean, this is almost to the point of a capital offense, depending on the part of the country that you're in. And the very first thing he does when he turns around and he addresses her is he addresses her as daughter, right? It's like every single time this dude shows up, he's like, what's up, family? What's going on? I appreciate that you came here. And like you're talking about, for a segue for a second, two really good evidence-based, science-based approaches of what you're talking about for your listeners is IFS, Internal Family Systems. So if they're not familiar with IFS, when you're talking about parts work and you're talking about having this dialogue and this conversation, IFS is really well-researched and really good evidence for being able to have a conversation. If you want a scriptural reference, look at all of the reasons that Paul said, I saw a, I saw a war in my members, right? So when he talks about the spirit warring against the flesh, which the flesh is not evil and the flesh is not the part that's negative, the flesh is the part that's designed to keep you alive without a sense of cognition or clarity because it doesn't have time. It needs to keep you alive because you could die. So the flesh is the animal primal part of you that goes, I can't have a board meeting about how I'm emotionally feeling at the moment. I need to get the hell out of Dodge. And that competition between those things is just the brainstem and the frontal lobe, specifically the midbrain and the frontal lobe. But Paul's talking about having a conversation as members. Then you're looking at situations where you're talking about like all of these different pushbacks. What better example of somebody wrestling all of their own interior conflicts than Legion. Jesus showing up and he's like, I am Legion for we are many. We have 65 to 70,000 unique experiences in the brain that we call thoughts, feelings, and actions every day. 
and only three to five percent of them reach conscious level. So even if you had three to five percent reach conscious level, you're still talking three to three and a half thousand unique thoughts a day. If only 10% of those were negative, you're having 350 negative thoughts a day that you can consciously connect with. Now, this isn't a point of sharing that it's a fear-based thing or a scary thing. It's a case of saying, is it possible for us to feel the same way as Legion did and go, I feel overwhelmed with the things that are happening inside my system and the number of conversations that are happening that I am losing my identity and losing my grip because I am bombarded on a daily basis with the things that tell me what I'm not. And as soon as this guy named Jesus shows up, he reminds me of my identity, tells me to let go of the negative thoughts, casts out what are called demons, which I think are just the natural neurology that's conflicted with what is potential in your health, right? And he's looking at this going, I still recognize that you have the capacity to be a whole human being. And he recognizes his identity. So for us to look at this and go, man, it feels weird to talk to the different parts of who I am. Really good psychology shows that if you talk about depression in third person, it will reduce the severity of the depression by 40% in most of the patients that are studied in that place. Like Jerome wrestles with all of these different spaces that he's dealing with. And you know, when I look at Jerome, I see his experiences the following. The research shows that if you talk about it in third person, it's as if you're describing someone that you know, but you're not personally experiencing it. And it allows your body to decrease the threat level so it doesn't increase the severity of the symptoms or the response in terms of the gravity of the situation. Mm -hmm. So all the stuff you're talking about can be evidence through scripture, can be evidence through science. But I think, if I take a deep breath myself, one of the big things is we're learning so effectively nowadays in 2020 that to get into contact with our interior landscape and to understand what's happening in our somatic experience as a person are all not only appropriate but healthy avenues for healing and recovery mm -hmm. and you see it constantly or else jesus wouldn't have sat at the last supper and had a conversation that was body based Yes. Jesus did not have a conversation around something that was intangible. He had a conversation around body-based dynamics, like the life-giving component of blood and the life-giving component of the body. Because I think even at the end, he's trying to remind us that our experience internally as a human being is not intrinsically toxic. Yes. It's actually really profoundly important to know that we have the capacity to become whole again and you know, then maybe you can be like Paul and do a lot of psilocybin and, and go up to the third heaven or whatever the case may be. I don't know. There's plenty of options. I'm just throwing yeah, it out there. Yeah, we're scratching the surface, right? Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff in this. In, 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 if we don't assume that the scripture is a metaphor in a lot of situations, we're going to be very, very, very hard-pressed to try and figure out how the hell it's possible. Well, exactly. You know? Exactly. I saw a quote from... <laughs> So a quote from an evangelical leader I shall not name just the other day on Twitter being like, make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the Bible is literal from cover to cover. And I'm like, really? Because, I mean, at the very least, I've got to then go, why do we have mountains, any mountains left? Because they all would have been cast into the sea by now if anyone had, you know, a mustard seed size amount of faith. And I have traveled sure. the world and I have seen some people with some faith. I have seen some people in the face of suffering, maintain hope. You can't tell yeah. me that they don't have faith. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's like you touched on the toxicity just then. If you, if you believe that 
that human beings are fundamentally wretched, then there's no point in spending any time here. Like, yeah, you know, if you believe that, it's not. that God has picked some and not others, well, there's no point in rolling the dice on that. Right. And it's also, I mean, to your point, to, and this is, I think, one of the, the beautiful things that I genuinely believe in the work that you're doing and the work that I'm trying to do in contemporary language and contemporary science and all of these contemporary resources, that the nature of having a, a healthy and, and contemporary prophetic, prophetic voice is to say, I understand your content. I understand your language. Let me do what this guy named Jesus did, which is coming to fulfill the law and not abolish it to clarify context and give you new perspective, to speak in parable and metaphor and do what's called Michelle-style wisdom way of teaching and say, if I can help you connect to identity and Imago Day conversations and get away from this idea of the, the wretched and broken nature of who you are as a human being, the constant conversation brings us back into community internally and externally in, in terms of the people that we come into contact with. We'll take a quick break to thank my Patreon supporters. I've got 51 people who support my work every month. They make a world of difference in my life, the life of my family. They free me up to focus on this podcast, on the writing I'm doing. That devotional that I mentioned to Dr. Jerome is coming out very, very soon. Uh, right now, I'm sending it out day by day as a Lenten devotional. Too late to sign up, but I know that many of you are already receiving it. Uh, thank you for those of you who are letting me know how it's how it's doing for you day by day. But if you'd like to learn more about that devotional, you go to jonathanpuddle.com slash D-E-V-O. Uh, you can get on the mailing list to keep informed. It will be out in all formats uh, in about two months, I believe. So, and yeah, if you'd like to join us on Patreon and support the work that I'm doing, patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Thank you so much. Get back to the show. But when I talk about the prophetic voice, I cannot have a conversation with people in the church who are going to use that tone and that language by disagreeing with them or by shutting them down. What I can say is, if you're going to tell me that the entire verse, the entire book from cover to cover is literal, then... I am going to remind you and reinforce and encourage you to reflect on there is nothing that you could ever do that would cause me to leave you or forsake you. I knew you before the world was created. I knew you after the world was finished. I knew you in the space before you were even knitted in the womb. So I was in relationship with God before the earth showed whether it was 6,000 years ago or it was 14.7 billion years ago, I don't have to have that conversation with you. There is, I'm not talking maybe, there's a caveat. There's literally nothing that I can do. And he's saying there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. So somebody wants to have a conversation. Well, I don't see color. I don't see all of the social inequity. I don't see the issue of being able to hammer the LGBTQ community. I don't, I don't fight those battles. Okay, cool. There's no Jew. There's no Gentile. That's the verse that you're using. Then let me help you understand that there is no segregation in faith. There is no segregation in perennial tradition. There is no segregation in who is and isn't a child of God. And every single person that has or will ever be born on the planet according to the literal scripture that you believe in cannot do anything that would cause God to leave them or forsake them. So, yeah, I'm on board with a little translation. <laughs> Let's go for it. I love I love that story with the woman, the bleeding woman. I I, I, uh, I actually teach it quite regularly to my kids' church because I'm a kids' church pastor. And it, I thought, you know what? We need to get into this story. Just even not least because I feel like it's a story. It's the last story most kids' pastors would, would want to touch on. 
but you know, it's like, sure. You walk in and your six year old's like, we learned about menstruation. Exactly. <laughs> I did. I may not have gone fully there with it, oh, but, that's but, so I, good. but I said, I said, look, I mean, I mean, and this partly I took from, from Jonathan Martin's interview with, uh, Oh, what's his name in Chicago, the pastor. Uh, anyway, um, he's like, uh, Jesus is going to the house of an important guy. He's important because we know his name. He's going to Jairus's house and, and we don't even know this woman's name. She's not even given a name until God, until Jesus, God in flesh says daughter, right? Like, yeah, that's your identity. Yeah. Uh, so talk to me more about the neurotheology of self care. Yeah, no, I'd love to. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I think the, the biggest concept that I was, I was trying to present in the brain based Enneagram is that we are not a number, you know, there's, there's, there, <laughs> it's like when we landed in the South, um, one of the first questions that we were asked almost consistently, it was, it was almost like they were handing out cue cards to literally everybody to ask immigrants as soon as they got to the States was what church do you go to and what Christian, what type of Christian are you? And me going, I didn't realize that there were different types because we didn't grow up with denominations. We grew up with there's there's the Christian and then the Christian type of Christian. And, you know, when I got into chiropractic, people were like, well, what technique are you going to do? And I'm like, um, the chiropractic kind of technique? The healing one? Not the, the one that helps uh, people who are seeking out a chiropractor. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Turns out there are over 650 approved or certified techniques of chiropractic. And I get into the Enneagram and they're like, well, what number are you? And I go, I don't know. I don't know how to speak that language. Fortunately, I wasn't grown up. I didn't grow up in a lineage and a tradition that that uh, inundated me with that. But the first question that I kept asking, especially because of my bias from the the Judeo-Christian kind of background and, and the divine consciousness kind of space that I'm in and a lot of the alternative orthodoxy and mysticism side of things, is if I'm made in the image of God and I have the capacity of the divine within me, what number is God? And literally everything that I looked at at that point that was based on a single number approach where you are actively only a single number kept falling short of the idea that I am comprehensively made in the image of God, especially if I'm going to do things better than Jesus. How am I supposed to do that if I'm an aspect of Jesus or an aspect of God? So I kept thinking through, especially in my bias as a patient and my bias as a clinician, that most of the people who I see and most of my experience in my life has been a reminder of what I'm incapable of mm. rather than a reminder of where I'm using some resources and not others, but I have the natural capacity and, and access to all resources. Um, I kind of joke around with folks that regardless of your level of health, um, if you walk into my clinic, you used every muscle you needed to walk into the clinic, whether you're a bodybuilder or you're somebody with ALS or you're a six-year-old that's never lifted weights or you're a 70-year-old trying to get out of a wheelchair who can stand but can't, can't move forward. Every muscle in the system is at a different stage and state depending on that person's experience and that person's use of those muscles. So when looking at the Enneagram, I kept coming up against this wall and going, but how does this work if I'm only a number? Yes. But there's no, there's no model. There's no, there's no tangible way for me to hold. It's kind of like asking questions in the church and them going, well, you just got to trust it. That's the way it works. And I'm like, but if that's the way it works, what is the way it works? How does it actually work? Well, that's how it works. I understand. But how does it work? And so what ended up happening 
was I, I got, I encountered the Enneagram at the same time that I was, you know, neck deep in a lot of functional neurology, which to your conversation originally at the beginning, uh, I can have a conversation with a single part of a single hemisphere of a single lobe of a single pathway of the brain. If you know how to activate it through sensation, through eye movements, I mean, a slow eye movement to the right is a completely different part of the brain than a slow movement to the left, a fast eye movement to the right, completely different than those first two. Fast movement to the left, completely different than those other three. So you know every single function in the body has a direct path or route or kind of mechanic that if you know how it's built, you know how to have a conversation with it. So it sent me on this journey of going, can I maybe figure out a different perspective on understanding how we use the entire map of the Enneagram similar to using the entire map of the human brain, similar to being the entire image of God? And that led me on trying to say, can we find some some handholds and some synonyms and kind of create some language that helps people see that there's more to them than uh, a simple, common approach to how they engage in the world? Yes, there's predispositions, but when you start involving things like adverse childhood experiences or attachment theory or trauma-informed practices or brain uh, development and neurological components, all of these other spaces, you start to go, okay, well, if I know how it's built and how it works, I can probably know how to work with it, how to improve it, and how to modify it. Mm-hmm. And that, that landed into all of, the, all of the spaces that exist in the book. Um, a really simple analogy that I would give you, um, I tell everybody – Looking at the entire map of the Enneagram, because it is a map, right? I think that's common language that everybody uses. It's really healthy. Um, If you look at the entire map of the Enneagram, you may have a primary headquarters where most of your population lives and where you are trying to constantly wake up and go to sleep or get back to. That's your home base, kind of like Delta's headquartered in Atlanta. But Delta flies all over the world, and it's got hubs all over the world. I mean, you were in South Africa two months ago. You don't wake up in Toronto and go, I'm incapable of getting to South Africa. You go, no, I mean, there's a strategy for getting to South Africa. What is that strategy? It is intercontinental. You have to cross continents. You have to cross major divides. So if I'm in a space where I'm primarily based in the heart triad as an efficient two, it means that my lifetime of lived experiences has told me the best way for me to survive and the best place to invest my resources and my time and my energy is to live in that particular space more often. But what if I realized that somebody woke me up and said, you've got people living in every country, which is your number, on every continent, which is a triad, and every part of that country, which is a subtype. You've got people statistically living there. Whether you know it or not doesn't make it true or untrue. The fact is you've got a population that's distributed across the planet. And what I think a lot of people are doing with the Enneagram that is akin to what's happening in a lot of the world nowadays uh, is that they're, they're turning the Enneagram into a really nationalistic approach. Right. Your number becomes, yeah, it becomes tribalism and nationalism. It's like, I live in this, this area of the world and you're allowed in if you're like me and you have to stay out if you're not. But if we start to see the entire Enneagram is the, the map of my particular world and how I interact in this universe that is the, the human population in the world that I engage in, the biggest thing is trying to shift the conversation to your most efficient in a number but you have capacity and access to all of the numbers like any other muscle in the body. 
if we understand that conceptually, can we start to ask questions of how each of those spaces are operating in context, especially the contemporary science around systems theories and connectomes and how the brain integrates and how it develops and then it manages itself. Nobody at any point nowadays is questioning how integrated the brain is. Mm -hmm. They've moved away from a left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and moved away from it's just the amygdala or it's just your limbic system or it's just your hypothalamus. They moved away from all that. And they moved into the space where they're like, this is so freaking integrated and so consistently active that it isn't a question of whether or not it's all in the conversation. It's who's leading the conversation and what happens when the conversation gets interrupted. And if we move that concept into the Enneagram, the brain-based Enneagram says that the actual diagram, the actual symbology of the Enneagram overlays the brain directly. So the head triad is your left hemisphere for thinking. The right hemisphere is your heart triad for feeling, complex emotion, not somatic feeling, but emotional feeling. And then your gut triad is the brainstem, which is your primitive survival-based process of action. And all three of those things collectively make the interaction of who you are as a person. And you can also do the same thing with the Trinity. It's pretty straightforward. The father is the head triad. It's the critical discipline-based boundary setter that can also throw a freaking party if you come back and doesn't hold it against you, right? It's the one that won't leave or forsake you. The heart is the feminine, divine feminine, emotional, nonverbal part of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit isn't quoted in Scripture once, and the right hemisphere is not a verbal part of the brain. It's a nonverbal relationship-based, power-based body-based because it has a map of both sides of the body. Um, but it's really important to see that the heart triad and the soul are very heavily connected to the concept of the Holy Spirit and the right hemisphere in emotional integration for humans. And then the brainstem, the gut triad, is the physical, body-based, corporeal, tangible part of what happens to engage in the world in a daily physical way, uh, which is pretty straightforward to see Jesus in because Jesus was the only one that had a body, <laughs> you know? And then if you see God as this integrated Christ figure, this integrated whole uh, in this idea of the perichoretic kind of connectome, which perichoresis is a spiritual word for everybody dancing together, and then connectome is a clinical, technical neuroscience word for all of the traffic within the brain. Uh, it's not hard to see that the reason that the world works so heavily spiritually, personally, and clinically in triads is because it's pretty synonymous with each other. We're saying the same thing, not even in a different language. We're just using a different dialect. Mm, I love that. When I when I heard you on Jonathan Martin's podcast, so much of what I was I was just like I was driving in the car and I was sitting back going, yes, but of like I knew this. Like, and, and, and of course it could. <laughs> it only makes sense to be this way. So you know, I bought the book right away, and as I was, like I said, I chewed up the first two thirds like in a couple of days, and, and I was, you know, stuff. Even just the simple statements like "you are not a left-brained person." Let's move that yeah. language out of the way. Like we're done with it. And I'm just absolutely like, obviously. How did we? I mean, I mean. Anyway, obviously we only understand what we understand, right? So there was a time when when that was as far as the knowledge went. But nonetheless, I'm like, no, I was calling bullshit on a lot of this from the beginning. It just didn't make sense intuitively to me that that we would be this way. That even when I did when I first got into the Enneagram, it's like, yeah, so you're a two. I'm like, well, I, I feel really seen, but I also kind of feel like I'm a lot more than that. Yeah. And it's also how many people and I I have the utmost respect 
for Father Richard Rohr. I've had the the good fortune of sitting down and having lunch with him one on one twice in the last year. And I saw him holding and, your book the other day. <laughs> and it's like That's this amazing. is a surreal thing. Like I'm like I'm living on a different planet. Um, but I have I've told him in conversation one of the things that I would really love for the church to move away from and the Enneagram culture to move away from is that if you introduce shame as the marker for your connection to a topic or a subject or a reflection about yourself, the way the brain works, it will create a connection of intimidation and fear, and it will constantly try to move away from the thing that creates the shame because it's painful. Mm. It's called limbic attachment. So if you're introduced to the Enneagram, and the reason I mentioned Father Richard on this is because a lot of the times he'll say what a lot of Enneagram teachers do, which is you'll know your number when you are ashamed. Mm. That's not a healthy way I don't want my child, I have two kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and then a 27-year-old, which is a younger brother that was raised, my wife's younger brother. Different story. But I don't want my four-year-old to discover his identity as a result of him being ashamed of who he is. I wouldn't do that to a four-year-old, so I shouldn't do it to a 36-year-old. If I'm introduced to a concept or a particular way of being in the world about myself that creates shame, what my brain is going to do is create a negative limbic attachment, which says that that's a space of fear and intimidation and shame. So every time that I encounter it, I'm going to try to move away from it because my brain has now associated it with a negative consequence. And I'm going to have to intentionally override it in order to remain in the conversation, which is really good parts work. And it's really good to work through discomfort, but you don't need to try and rebuild a house that you broke in the first place by being told it's broken and you should be aware of how broken it is. Mm. I think there's different concepts that you can do here where on a clinical side, yes, is it helpful to know where there's opportunities for improvement? Sure. But am I going to sit with a patient who's coming in with a profound degree of issues that they already know they don't feel good, they feel symptomatic, and remind them how ruined and broken their body is as a point of encouragement and a strategy for for pursuing problem solving? (laughs) It's just we know through the psychology that if the brain encounters something that is really, really perceived as dangerous or uncomfortable – you are going to have a much harder time of remaining in the conversation in a healthy and mature way. But if you start the conversation by saying, look, this isn't about fear, shame, or intimidation. It's about awareness. It's about self-awareness. It's about growth. It's about honest and pragmatic conversations around what's not working. But I need you to start with the clinical, literal, spiritual truth that you are capable of change instantly. And in fact, the change is so fast, it happened before you recognize that you are capable of the change. (laughs) (laughs) Pre-sentiment shows that when I go to have a thought, like to lift my finger, I'm talking to you and I'm talking with my hands. Before I even have a thought, my brain has staged the resources and prepared to fulfill that request 15 to 17 times before I realized I had the request. It's staged already in a set 15 to 17 times before I realized I was going to ask it to say go or direct it to say go. So when we're talking about sitting with somebody and going, I know, I know, coming back to the woman with the issue of blood, I know that you have lost all of your money seeing all of the providers and you're worse as a result of your encounter with the providers, which is also a metaphor and I think a really strong indication of of her interaction with the church as well. Because a lot of times the church tries to 
be someone's clinician, especially around trauma, and they don't even understand the language around trauma. So they have to be careful trying to be a provider in a space they are not trained in. But she's saying, I'm worse now than I was when I started as a result of my encounters with the professionals or with the authority figures. And the very first thing that Jesus does when he comes back is he keeps reminding her of what's possible. He reminds her of what she's capable of. He reminds her that it's her effort and her space in desiring to even be in a place where you're willing to try again, which is really, really, really hard when you've spent years being broken and being reminded by the professional community and the spiritual community that it's probably your fault and there's nothing that they can do for you. And then she shows up in a situation that is technically illegal, and he reminds her of what's possible. And I think for that being the case with the Enneagram, whether you believe anything about the spiritual context of what I just mentioned with the scripture of Jesus, we are not wired as human beings to encounter anything about our own identity with shame, fear, or intimidation and still pursue health. So if you want to pursue health, there has to be some degree of solution orientation rather than problem solving. Because problem solving and problem focus is going, this is everything that's wrong versus solution oriented saying, I can't guarantee I'm going to fix it, but I'm going to try and change my perspective and my orientation to move towards something that's more hopeful and more encouraging by starting from a position of believing that I am capable of change. And neuroplasticity is a basic answer for that. You know, I mean, the brain shows that that's possible. So in every context, even if people have walked away from any degree of faith connection or spiritual practice, I can have a really profound conversation with them around hope, faith, and the potential for change through neuroplasticity that they may have never had in a church-based setting. Yes, I love it. I was explaining the Enneagram recently to a friend, because obviously that's what we do when we know about the Enneagram, who had no concept. And and it was interesting because his first reaction was based out of he had he had been through Myers-Briggs and various other schools under a leader whose philosophy was if you're not like me you're not as you should be and so he basically said I don't want to learn another tool that's going to tell me to be different than who I am right and I said that would be fair that would be a fair resistance and so let's talk about what growth looks like for you what what you are that the the weaknesses inherent to your mode of thought and how those can be bolstered and strengthened and mitigated against. And all of a sudden, to your point, all of a sudden, it was like, this is good news. This is growth. This is hope for me. And I watched everything on his face change. And I began to read through some of them. I quickly diagnosed him as a efficient one, and sure. which I may or may not, should, should not do. But either way, I quickly read through some of the stuff, <laughs> basically. And he was like, okay, I'm in. <laughs> tell me more but it was the hope right it was the hope it was the this is how you can be you with also moving past some of the things that you know are hard about being you absolutely because this is the thing i mean whether you have an inner critic or not you know we joke around every every kind of space on the enneagram again if you think of it as a country on a continent in the world uh every single one has its own anthem (laughs) It has its own motto. It has its own, you know, personal perspective on how the world should operate and what it what's what its primary focus is. Uh, You know, you can you can take the metaphor as far as you want to go with it. But we can Um, actually sing those songs. Thanks. Thanks to sleeping at last. (laughs) That's exactly right. Uh, That was also one of the most fun to segue for a second. That was one of the most fun parts of my year last year. I've actually been listening to Ryan O'Neill. for 11 years, 12 years, yeah, yeah. my entire soundtrack for most of my studying in school, I did 515 credits in just over five years. 
So it wasn't the healthiest approach from us from an academic standpoint. And that did not include travel, postgraduate work, or the residency program that I basically <laughs> um, walked into uh, with with my mentor. It, I, this is why I teach on self-care, because sometimes which I'm sure you can appreciate my my two friend with uh, with either wing. Uh, rest is not natural for me, so I have to work for it, especially because my subtype, my my instinct that I'm I'm lowest in is self-preservation, so it's not natural. I have to intentionally pursue it or allow it to show up. Um, but sitting with Ryan um, at a conference in August last year and handing him the book, and his first response going, "Wow, this is beautiful." And him appreciating the artwork, because for anybody who doesn't know the book, it's actually designed like a Michelin star restaurant. It's beautiful. You're, you're it is beautiful. You're, you're supposed to consume it with your eyes first and your and your mind second and, and your practical application third. And shout out to Amy Strickland, who is the artist um, who did that work. I, I conceptualized it with her because my undergrad is in digital animation and film. But the the art itself was was done by uh, her and, and the book wouldn't exist without her artwork or uh, Tiffany Berkowitz, who's the person who takes my ideas from a what I think is from a PhD to a ninth grade level, which I try my best to think is really, really sufficient. And she goes, "We're not going for ninth grade here, so I'm going to help you drop it down a few levels." Uh, so the the credit to those two incredible women for that. But um, that being said, the the concept of this space of going, well, how do I get better? Where's the hope in this? Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's like the classic verse for depression. Like this is also coming back to the original point earlier in the conversation, why the whole idea around substitutionary atonement and brokenness is a really bad idea. Because if there's nothing that you can do, even with grace, because you're reminded the grace is, is like a, a checking account that will run out. And then when the overdraft comes in, you, you don't get a ticket into heaven. <laughs> like you're constantly, your hope is always deferred. And we wonder why the global state of the, of, of the evangelical church is, is so anxious and depressed. It's because they don't, they don't actually know what the good news is. Um, which I know is a powerful statement, and I, I don't retract it. But when you're looking at the the friend that you're talking about, it's helpful for us to know that when we're having conversation with different people who are efficient in different spaces, if he lives in that country named one, and one of the challenges that they wrestle with in their particular space is a really, really powerful inner critic that from a gift standpoint makes them the most effective execution of a task and the most effective at precisely carrying out a task in how they act, that precision and that desire to make things right, to refix them and fix them again and reiterate it over and over, makes them the most effective person to manage a project or to lead a space when it comes to action. But it also makes their brain so efficient at being relentless and whether or not they've done it properly, mm. whether or not they need to do it again and do it better. And is it good enough? And if I know I'm speaking to someone who wakes up and lives in that country and that is what they've been indoctrinated with their entire life, I very rarely need to give them any kind of critical feedback because they've probably already got it. Mm. They've gone through it all the time. So when we start learning the anthems and kind of the, the songs and the, and the spaces, which I highly recommend Sleeping at Last, which is on the Atlas album, I, I think not to belabor the point, it's just that this is where, if we're talking about really strength-based language, this is why I put the SWOT analysis in the back of the book, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, to go, man, if you encounter the Enneagram and the first thing that you do is reinforce your strengths so that you can have a bit more fuel and a bit more resources to start tackling really hard projects like weaknesses and threats, go for it. 
You know, if it's a case of you saying, you know what, based on the last two years of my life, I can't have another conversation around where I'm missing it. I just need to know where the opportunities are that I can maybe celebrate and I can I can experience some degree of hope uh, so that I, I don't keep staying in the space that, that I experience despair. I mean, you're talking to somebody who has had over 2,000 migraines in the last 20 years and suicide attempts and also wakes up every day as a patient and has already had eight migraines this month. If somebody keeps coming to me and telling me, hey, you know that you know that your your life pretty much sucks and you're broken, I don't see that as good news. And I certainly don't see it as something that's going to potentially keep me above ground to try and impact the world in a positive way. So sometimes it's okay for us to let go of our desire to remind people of where they're missing it and maybe just reinforce them a little bit. Mm, so good. I feel like uh, I could have this conversation all day, but I know we're up against the clock. Thank you for for being a person to, to do exactly that for, for encouraging us, for supporting us, for, for doing a deep dive on all these different subjects and pulling it together in a way that is incredibly life-giving. I appreciate that immensely. I appreciate you immensely. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're, you're, and I will say just one thing at the end here that's, I think, helpful for Enneagram language and also psychological language. My tendency when somebody says they appreciate my work and they appreciate me is to go thank you and to let it go to move on. But I want to just give a metaphor quick for just a second, if we've got a, a chance for time. I think every single number on the Enneagram runs their own restaurant and produces their own particular menu. And what they, tr what they struggle to do is sit down and eat their own food and take a chance to have a meal to catch their breath because they're running through the process of consistently creating their space. Like me, efficient in two, I'm trying to create a space that when people are in my presence or in my sphere of influence or in my restaurant or in my world that they feel valued and they feel appreciated so i give that to people because you give what you need what i'm looking for is affirmation i'm looking for appreciation i'm looking for someone to say that i value you and i value what you do but the challenge is i go for such a long period of time without sitting down to have a meal that i end up starving for it and desiring it so strongly that when i finally do sit down I have the same reaction as someone who has been physically starved for an extended period of time, which is I eat it too fast, I throw it all up, and only the residual effect remains. So I would encourage each of us in each of our places, whatever the natural gift is in your particular number, and whatever your – even if you don't know your number, here's an easy way to figure it out. Whatever you tend to be very, very, very good at giving other people, whether it's healthy or it's unhealthy, I'm not even going to qualify it. Whatever you're naturally good at producing and giving to other people in terms of your style of engagement, I would take into consideration when the last time was that you sat down and had a healthy encounter with that particular resource that you are so good at providing other people. Because if you aren't doing it on a regular or a daily basis, your system is going to be starved for it. And if you don't consume it on a regular basis or allow it to be integrated and metabolized into your body, you're going to regurgitate it because your system is going to fight the process as to whether or not it can even hold it. So I say that to say I receive and appreciate the response that you gave, and I will allow myself to digest it and to integrate it. So that it becomes less awkward and it becomes less of a default for me to just pass that plate on and say, I, I'm, I'm not going to take a chance to sit down for a few minutes and eat with you. So I appreciate it. 
I can I can vouch for every single word that Jerome just said. <laughs> I, I, I face those same same challenges uh, and have learned to give it to myself. I mean, in Andy Colbert's language, to learn to to try softer and to parent myself to give myself what I wasn't given. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time today. Uh, would you Would you pray for us, Jerome? I'd be happy to, man. I'd be happy to. A little bit of a redeeming space for some of my my history. So we'll uh, we'll plant a new seed, right? Um. God, I am more grateful than I could possibly express for a reminder of what is possible. For the fact that you have made us in a way that gives us access to more than we could ever hope or imagine. In a way that is more effective and more powerful than we ever thought possible. I ask that everybody that's listening and even in our own space for Jonathan and I, that you do what you do best which is continue to remind us of who we are and to dismiss what tries to tell us who we aren't. Remind us that we're capable of wholeness, that we are not broken, and that every single moment that we have is an opportunity to reconnect with community, with friends and family. And I ask that in the space of anyone that is listening at the moment that is suffering, that is hurting, that they are not alone that they may feel alone, but even in this conversation, there are two people that are with them and Jonathan and I and for them. And we pray that they are able to, in some small measure, just take one deep breath and try again, and one deep breath and try again. Please give us the resources and the insights, give us the clarity and allow us to know that we are not driven by fear. We pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen. And that was Dr. Jerome Libba. Thank you so much for listening to us both ramble on and just uh, indulge one another's passions and interests. Uh, Go check out the show notes for some links to some other podcasts where Dr. Jerome uh, expanded on some of those topics. If you're looking for more of an entry-level content, there's, there's plenty of that that's out there. Hit the show notes for links to those things. Friends, um, I don't know if you've heard about the uh, COVID-19 virus. Uh, That's obviously a joke. Uh, My children's schools look like they're going to be closed for the next three weeks. So it's possible this may be the last podcast for a couple of weeks. I don't exactly know what the next few weeks are going to look like. Rest assured, I'm still recording interviews, and I've got uh, a bunch of really cool things to share with you before too long. I just don't know if I'm going to have time to edit and do all the work necessary with my three children at home. So uh, if you don't hear from me for a couple of weeks, that's why. But I'm here, I'm healthy, I'm full of excitement and joy, and I I look forward to connecting with you guys online on social media. JonathanPuddle.com, at JonathanPuddle on all the social medias. Uh, patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle if you want to join the team and uh, I'm so thankful for you guys listening so thankful to, for Dr. Jerome being on the show God bless you all, grace and peace may you find the resources you need to dive in deeper, much love <laughs>